be seated. Those who are coming forward, thank you. Happy Father's Day. Let me just remind all the fathers here, it's not a few minutes of work slash fun that gets you the reward the rest of your life. Okay, fathers, it's not just those few minutes. It's your life to your children. Amen, dads? Okay, so now that we've said that, we have to remember, fathers, that when we are with our children, we are to be strong. Can I get an amen for being strong, dads? We are to be brave, but we're also to be kind. We're also, <laughs> come on, we got to be gentle. We got to be patient. Amen. I took my children on a 15-mile bike ride yesterday. They hated almost every minute of it. I said, we might do it again today for Father's Day, but I made sure to go at the pace that they could keep up with. I'm not saying that I'm always the perfect father. I do have six children, so I have a lot of practice, but I will say this. As I think about God the Father and how he is to me, that is how I want to be to my children. Amen? And then all the young men here, stay humble Stay holy and keep your privates in your pants until that day comes. I have another way of saying it, but I'm saying it, you know, PG-13 now. So young men, stay humble, stay holy, and keep it locked up until you have a wife. And then you can become a father. All right? And then all the young ladies here that are single, ready to mingle, do not give your time and attention to any man that doesn't want to be a husband and a father. You don't want a boyfriend. You don't want a bae. You don't want a hookup, a one-night stand. You want a husband. Right, ladies? Amen. And so I hope that all the fathers, you feel appreciated. We love you. We love each and every one of our men in this place. I love men. Praise God. I almost want to have an arm wrestling contest with the men right now. How much time do we have? How many fathers do we have here, man? Seriously, I almost just want to do it. Like just see where I would rank and then see where you would rank, you know? Okay, now the Holy Ghost is like, no. Nah. <laughs> Elder Daryl's like, no. Nah. So that's the witness right there. Okay, open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 19. But fathers, you deserve it. Mothers, we love you. We couldn't do it without you, I know. Like, our, our days are so mingled together. A mother couldn't be a mother without a father, and a father couldn't be a father without a mother. They're so connected. And in this church, we know who mothers and fathers are. Amen? We still believe in that. Isn't that something that, that has become so radical, that we understand who mothers and fathers are, like mommies and daddies? That's amazing. Like, you're a part of, like, a cultural revolution that's standing up for mommies and daddies. Praise God. Now to take an entirely different turn in the service, we are now going to discuss the torture, the crucifixion, the death, and the burial of Jesus. Are you ready? We have come to the part of our series in the book of John we, where we get to what most of us would say is the good part. But before we can get to the good part, we have to go through the bad part. We've been going through the book of John now for almost three years. It's been over two years, by God's grace, we've been doing this. And uh, it's amazing that God has 
kept his word and has been with us this whole time. And just before we get into this, we've all seen the movies, we've all seen the pictures, but we have to get ready to see this from John's perspective, lest we just gloss over the details and get right to where he's crucified. So I want you to see some of the details that John is going to bring up. So today's message is entitled, It is Finished. Somebody say, it's finished. Amen. And as we get ready to see some of the details that John brings out that isn't uh, found in other Gospels, I have some illustrations and some things we'll be looking at. But let's look at it. John chapter 19 in the passage here, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him. In the face. Daryl, would you bring me the crown of thorns here first? I want you to think about the crown of thorns. Thank you, sir. This is a replica from the area from Israel that possibly could be the thorns that were put upon Jesus' head. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want this pushed on me. I was actually handing this off to Lauren and I poked myself and it hurt. And I thought to myself, this would hurt, but more than the pain of the thorns going in the head, it would be the humiliation that I think would hurt more. Are you all tracking with me? Especially now that we're on Father's Day. I mean, think about this, men. Think about the humiliation to have this put on your head by other men and to be mocked, to be spit at, to be slapped in your face. I... I can't imagine what that would be like, yet our precious Jesus went through this. I want to pass this around. Be careful not to poke yourself, especially uh, parents with your children. I just want you to see that. Daryl, would you get me the cat of nine tails, which Jesus was flogged with? Thank you, sir. You could just set it right here. The cat of nine tails was the nickname for the torture device that the Roman soldiers used to torture their enemies and those that they wanted to feel the wrath of the Roman Empire. In other words, this kind of treatment really wasn't done even to Roman citizens, especially the crucifixion. This kind of treatment was done to who they considered to be the least in their society, the dogs, the scum. And yet Jesus bore this whip more times than we could possibly want to have done to us. They say 39 times, but remember, that was the Jewish limit. The Romans were not Jews. They could have whipped him as many times as they wanted. Of course, sturdy handle, leather whip. But here at the tips, which made this a very unique torture device, were these lead balls put at the end. And there in those lead balls melted into them were pieces of broken glass and metal. So that when you would get whipped by the whip, I mean, I don't know about you, but take off the metal pokey balls. Whipping me with this, just the leather would hurt. Can I hear an amen to that? If you don't believe me, I'll take off my belt and we'll give it a try. We'll just have one piece of leather, you know, hit you a few times and see how it feels. There's nine on here. And now imagine a Roman soldier taking it like you would a, 
gripping them with all of his strength. The point of the metal at the end with the, the spiky tips was so that when it went into your flesh and they pulled back, the flesh would come out with it. They didn't just whip backs. They whipped backs, fronts, legs, every part of the human body. I know some of you have seen the passion of the Christ. And even Mel Gibson, when he talked about it, said he wanted it to be realistic. But they had to draw the line at some point for the Jesus to go on for the rest of the movie. Some scholars believe that our Jesus, after he received this, had ligaments hanging out from his body. So his, his thigh ligaments would be hanging out if he was whipped here because the flesh would just be so torn. And then the ligaments would just be hanging down. The tissue on his back and his lats just hanging like ribbons. I want you gentlemen to look at this, pass it along. There is broken glass and metal at the end there. This is what our Jesus endured. And yet, they're not done. Just that alone, spitting on him, punching him, pushing a crown of thorns on him, whipping him with the cat of nine tails. Most of the time, according to historians, that was it. The crucifixion but we're, that we're about ready to get to was a standalone torture device. If you got the cross, that was what you got. If you got the flogging, that is what you got. And obviously, if you got the cross, you were going to die up there. It was not recorded much in history that you would get both. That's why when we get to the end of this story here in John, the other ones crucified with Jesus, they're still alive as the day goes on, but Jesus has already died. The reason is, is because Jesus has bled out from his torture. Jesus has asphyxiated maybe on his own blood internally as it's coming up into his lungs and he can't breathe anymore as he's trying to hang on a cross. And yet, brothers and sisters, think about this. We have people today who will wear a cross and yet blaspheme the name of the Lord. They'll wear a cross to a club and do ungodly things. They'll wear a cross as they act as a wicked, filthy sinner. And this is what Jesus went through on the cross. Let's keep going. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. Now you have to see from John's gospel that John shows you the human side here of Pilate. He's not just a, a cartoon figure going through the motions. He's an actual dude. He's really trying to figure this out. They're wicked. They're crazy. The, the Romans aren't known for their compassion, but yet he's still a human. He still has common sense. He doesn't want to be played by the Jewish people. So he's like, y'all are bringing to me a guy that really we as Romans have no problem with. Now that we've beat him, now that we've allowed him to be punched on, and you've mocked and ridiculed him, take him home. Man, just get him out of here. I mean, we did what we would do to a dog. We've whooped him. We've beaten him. We've kicked him. We've done everything we wanted to. Just take him. And yet the Jews are not happy with that because it's going to fulfill prophecy that it's God's own people that are going to make 
him go to the cross. As soon as the chief priests, notice this, not the chief Satanists, but the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. So who's leading the charge? It's the religious people. Sometimes the religious people are the worst kind of people. Can I hear an amen in this church this morning? Even if they're sitting next to you, don't be afraid of them. It's okay to say amen. Even religious people need to hear this today. If you're here and you're religious, we still love you. But religion will have you crucifying Jesus thinking you're right with God. Religion will have somebody going in a plane, blowing it up, blowing up a building, thinking they're doing something for God. Religion will have you mistreating people thinking you're doing it for God. You see, these people thought God was on their side so they could get away with anything. They're shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. He's like, I need to at least write something down. We're a people of order. If Rome had one thing going for it, it was order. Rome knew how to put stuff in order. I mean, think of the Roman roads, think of the aqueducts, think of the Colosseums. Their government was a strong, centralized government that could take over other smaller nations. I mean, he's like, I got to write something down here. I get what y'all are trying to do. You're upset with him because of your religion. He's claiming to be God in your religion. That's blasphemy. According to your religion, he deserves to die, but I can't do that here. Otherwise, I would be killing everybody in everybody else's religion. So you go kill him. You go do something about it. The Jewish leaders insisted, verse 7, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Now I want everyone to get this. Jesus claiming to be the son of God was blasphemy to the Jews who understood that both Israelites and angels were called sons of God. Why was Jesus in a category known as blasphemy when he said he was the Son of God? When all throughout the scriptures, the prophets, the other godly people are known as sons of God, the angels are known as sons of God, why is this worthy of blasphemy? Because in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man receives worship as God. This is a unique son of God. Now remember John, how does John always present Jesus? The unique, only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only what? Begotten son. His only begotten son. So for those who look at the scriptures and say, well, Jesus was just claiming to be a son of God like everybody else. No, no, no. The Jews knew exactly what he was claiming when he was claiming to be the son. So when we explain the nature of Jesus to non-Trinitarians, we need to start there. I'm a father, and I'm celebrating Father's Day today. So what are my children, if I'm a human, what are my children in nature? If I'm a human father, what are my children? human. And if I'm a son that celebrates my father today, then what is my father in nature? A human, right? But now if Jesus is the son of God, what is he in nature if his father is God? God. But you are called a son or a daughter of God. Angels are called a son and daughter of God, but does that make them equal to God in his nature? No, because those are sons and daughters in a different way. 
Angels and humans are sons and daughters of God in a creative sense. His creation, they have a beginning. Humans have a beginning. Angels have a beginning. But the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word. He was already there. And he was with God and he was God. Now do you see the difference? We're explaining to them Jesus is the same nature of the Father because he's not a creature like us. He is not a created thing like angels. He is the creator like his Father. So in that way, he is unique. Everyone hear this. Only begotten, magogenes, is the word unique. One of a kind. We think of only begotten, meaning that was Jesus' birthday. He's begotten. No, but the Bible says he has an eternal begetting with the Father. In other words, he has been proceeding uniquely from the Father from before time even was created. In eternity past. Is everybody tracking with me? The begottenness of the Son. Everyone think of like this. A river flowing and having a tributary coming from it. Now imagine that river flowing from eternity, no beginning. How long would that tributary or that stream be flowing from it? It would be flowing as long as the river was flowing. Can I hear an amen? How long has the father been a father? For eternity. So how long has he had a son? For eternity. How long has the father been flowing to the son? His life force and energy and his divine nature from the beginning, time without end. The Jesus of the Bible is equal to the father because he shares in that eternal river. Amen? And then if you want to now be technical, from the river of the father to the son and his tributary, then flows the Holy Spirit. So you would see it as that kind of, as we've talked about, that upside-down triangle from the Father to the Son to the Holy Spirit. We do the triangle like this, but you could also do it the other way to show the procession of the, uh, the Son from the Father and the Spirit from the Father and Son. Now notice this. The chief priests want to crucify him. The uh, Pilate, the Roman government, has no reason to do it. They then bring up their blasphemy charge, which shows you the kind of son he is or was claiming to be is unique. Now notice Pilate's response, verse 8. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Now notice this. You're learning in John some details about Pilate that you didn't know before, probably as we've learned last week because of John's relationship with the leadership. He's more afraid, and he went back inside the palace where do you come from, he asked Jesus, but Jesus did not give him an answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Now notice what Jesus says here in response. Look at verse 11, please. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Does everybody see Jesus is in control? He says, you would not have power over me unless my Father gave it to you. You think you're in control, Pilate, but really my Father's in control. 
And when it comes to handing out sin, as we've talked about in the Bible, there is a greater sin. All sins are not the same. Hell will not be the same for everyone. And heaven and the new earth will not be the same for everyone. You will get punished according to how you live. So Hitler will get punished worse than others in hell. And then you will get blessed according to how you live. More blessings to those who did more for the Lord. Can I hear an amen? There's greaters and lessers in both places, okay? The Bible talks about that. So that's why the Bible says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. But notice this. Pilate thinks he's in charge because he can crucify Jesus. He's saying, Jesus is saying back, you are not in charge. My father's in charge. And as we've learned earlier, Jesus lays down his life so he can take it up again. But he points out the great sin of Judas betraying him. It would have been better for him never to have been born than to have done that to Jesus. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. So I guess he liked that sassiness. Hey, man, I can do with you whatever you want. No, you can't. If it wasn't for my father, you couldn't do anything. Okay, I kind of like you, man. I kind of want to set you free. So Pilate's trying to set Jesus free now. He's convinced this guy, his, you know, he's the real deal. He's standing up for what he believes in. But the Jewish leaders, notice this, kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. You remember I also brought this up last week. It's good to, re- to remember here. What are the two reasons for Jesus' death according to the persons involved? For the Jews, it's blasphemy calling himself the king of the Jews, the king of Daniel, son of man, the one from Daniel chapter 7. So it's this blasphemy charge. They wouldn't have cared if he said he was the king of uh, Egypt, the king of Ethiopia. That wouldn't have mattered to them when he talked about him being the king over them, that he came to rule them that he was the only way, the truth, and the life to the Father. All of these claims to the Jewish people made him worthy of death, blasphemy. And you can see that in your scriptures in Leviticus 24, 13 through 16, that those who blaspheme were to die. But, of course, Jesus isn't blaspheming because he's really all of those things. But now they need the Romans to collude with them to kill him because they can't do the death penalty on their own. Eventually, they do it on their own in some ways with New Testament uh, and the book of Acts with Stephen. They just get fed up with Stephen and do it, and they probably run and hide like cowards from the government because they couldn't do that. But here they're knowing the popularity of Jesus, and so they're wanting to play by the rules. So they need to give the Roman government a reason to kill Jesus. And that reason is he claims to be a king. But remember, as we talked about before, a king has to have some type of a kingdom or some type of a revolution. So they're trying to figure out, where are you from? Are you trying to conquer us? Are you trying to set up a kingdom here? What are you doing? You just, uh, if you just walk around calling yourself king, that doesn't mean much to us unless you have some type of a belief behind it. So notice this. He says to him, or he says rather, I want to know where you are from. Like, I want to know where the kingdom is you're coming from. And these uh, accusations, if they're true or not, verse 13, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out, sat down on a judge's seat at a place known as the stone payment, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. He said, now here is your king. Pilate said to the Jews, okay, so you're calling him your king then, okay, so I'll play along with this. I don't really have a reason to kill him. He's not, he's not causing any revolution right now. He's, he's not an insurrectionist, so here's your king. 
But the Jews shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Now notice this, shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. And then here's where it crosses the line here. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So now he has said to the Jews, this is your king. What do you want me to do with them? And they say, crucify him. Now in his mind, he's justified. This is a king trying to cause an insurrection with the Jews to be a king over them. The Romans don't allow that, and the Jewish people don't even want it. Now, could they have kings? Yes. Do you guys remember King Herod? If they were set up and done the right way, the nation of Rome, to keep their subjects happy, would let kings rule over their little kingdoms as they sat on top. In our day and age, it would be more like a governor, even though they had those too. But that's kind of what it was like. And so now he gets it, and now he can write something on his paper. This man is trying to be king over them. That's causing insurrection. They don't want him to be the king. They're rejecting him, and they want him to die for the insurrection he's causing with them. Now we can step in and crucify him. Everybody go, ah. See, you learned something there, right? Because how do Romans have permission to kill Jesus? There had to be a reason. And it was now the Jews claimed he was their, uh, they said he claimed to be their king, which he did, but then they didn't want him to be that king. So now the Romans have it. So you have the blasphemy charges of the Jews, and then now the Romans can say, this man is trying to be a king over a nation. He has no permission to do so. So take him away to be crucified. Uh, Daryl, would you get me those nails there, please? So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. Thank you, you said it right there. To the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha, where they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Now, when I got the replicas, they gave me these, which of course are a little bit smaller than what you normally see in the movies. But the person I bought it from was quite convinced that this would be the size of the nail because it's all that you really need. And oftentimes we think of the nail going through the hand of Jesus, but if you put a nail through the hand and you don't have the crucified vic uh, victim tied up by their arms, how many know they're just going to slip right out? Because there's nothing there for the nail really to hold on to. If you go through the hand, the finger bones will just split apart and the tendons will split apart and you'll just go right through it. But where we think historically he was crucified was through the wrist. Because now through the wrist you have the arm bones that attach to the hand bone. And so you would be stuck there. If anybody wants to try this at home and let me know the difference. Well, it kind of slipped out when I tried it, Pastor. Yeah, but yeah there I stood up there. Do you know that there are some cultures that do this, like in the Philippines and in other Catholic cultures, they sometimes crucify each other just to see how it feels for their penance for sin, and they'll do it through the hand because, once again, you can be having a nail go through there. It would be painful, but you would be quite all right. Even here, you could probably survive it, but remember, what we have Jesus going through is not just a mere crucifixion. The crucifixion as a form of a death penalty was to leave you up there until you died of other causes. You weren't going to die of the nail wounds, in other words. You were going to die because you couldn't drink water and you're out there in a hot climate. Three or four days without water, how many know you die? 
Also, depending on how you're crucified, and the historians go back and forth because we don't have pictures or a video from back then. They did crucify in multiple ways. Did he have a stoop to put his feet on? Did he have his arms tied? Did he have both of those things? Depending on how many of those things or the less of the things that are there is how long you can breathe for. If you don't have a stoop and all you have is one nail through the two feet, every time you breathe, you're lifting up on crucified feet. How many know after a certain amount of time standing up like this to breathe, you're going to stop breathing because you're not going to have the energy. Your body will not be able to take it, and so you'll just slump down, and then you'll begin to, to choke and not begin to be able to breathe and die of asphyxiation. We don't know exactly what they were planning to do with Jesus that day as he was up there in the sense of how he would be crucified and how long he was going to be up there according to them. I don't know what their plan was. But they beat him within an inch of his life. He's bloody. He's tore up. He's been mocked and ridiculed. And now he's placed there. So go ahead and pass these around. Like an animal to die publicly, shamefully. And once again, just remember this. Every time you see a cross... People wear these crosses and still disrespect our Jesus. People wear these things and have no honor for Jesus. I don't understand that. Listen, when I was a sinner, at least I knew not to do that. I didn't want anything to do with Jesus. But I want to encourage you not to be mean, not to be rude. But if you ever meet someone that has a cross on or a tattoo of a cross or something like that, and you see them acting unchristian, to gently, I'll say gently, gently remind them of what they're representing by that cross, by that tattoo, because Christ died for them to be forgiven of sin, not to continue to live in sin. Amen? So here he is now crucified. And Pilate, verse 19, had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. This is evidence to why our Bible could be written in Greek and still be the language of that time is because the three main languages were Latin, Aramaic, and Greek. Latin was primarily for the Romans, and Aramaic was for the Jews, and Greek was for the culture of commerce. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And how many parents can say amen to that? I have said what I have said. It is now done. It is finished. Praise God. We make our declaration and we stick with it. Now notice this right here. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each one of them. With the undergarment remaining, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so what you think of is them wearing undergarments that would be like one-piece robes and then having a thicker robe on top and maybe a sash or maybe a vest. And so you have Jesus here with four pieces of clothing, and they're basically dividing them up, and they're gambling for them, and the one that is the most valuable is his undergarment. And they say, verse 24, let's not tear it, they said one to another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. And that's in Psalm 22, verse 18, the prophecy that Jesus would have his clothes gambled over. 
So this is what the soldiers did. Now notice this, verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Somebody say amen for the women. Praise God. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the other disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his house. So notice what John also brings up here that is not as clear in the other gospels. The number one people that are faithful to Jesus in his last hours are women. Can I hear an amen for that one more time? Praise God for women disciples. And they are going to be the first preachers. They're going to be the first ones to go tell the disciples he has risen. So do I believe in women disciples? Absolutely. Do I believe in women preachers? Absolutely. They've been there with Jesus from the very beginning. Who am I to forbid them now? At times in Paul's churches, he had to ask them to be quiet because they were causing a mess. And other times it was because the culture didn't respect him, uh, respect the women. So they had to wear head coverings and all of these things. But where we are today in our culture, there is no reason to restrict the freedom for women to be Christ's disciples and Christ's preachers. Amen? And when you look at the New Testament, you see it everywhere the church is. You see the powerful women of God starting with churches like in Rome, and Rome's, Romans 16, Phoebe being the one given the letter of the book of Romans to bring to them and to be in charge. She was a deacon, praise God. Can I hear an amen one more time? Amen. So I just want to bring that up. And then here's another thing that's good to note is that Joseph is not there. So more than likely he has passed by then. He is now gone because we would think the father would be there. But he's not. So we're going to assume that he's passed. According to history, that's the best guess. And then we know that Jesus has brothers. We also know he has sisters. We've learned that later on, I mean, earlier in the gospel. And so that's good to remember now. But why does Jesus hand his mother off to this disciple? The one whom Jesus loved. That's how he's known. We believe the one whom Jesus loved is actually the author of this gospel, John. So we believe that is him. But why does he do that? Because in that culture, Jesus being the firstborn, he would be responsible for caring for his mother. Now that he's crucified, and he knows he's going to come back, but he will not live with Mary until the end of her life, he has to be responsible. Somebody say, that's a good son. That's a good son. But he doesn't hand the responsibility over to his brothers. Why not? Because they had not believed in him. They were not following him. So he gave charge of his mother to his closest disciple, John, so that she could be in a Christian home able to practice her faith. What is beautiful is that later on, his two brothers, who would be half-brothers, because there's only one virgin-born son of God. Can I hear an amen to that? His half-brothers, which would mean they came from Joseph's seed and Mary, they become disciples. And they begin to follow Jesus. Look at the book of Jude. Go there quickly with me. Jude and James are the disciples of Jesus who were his half-brothers. But look at Jude chapter 1, verse 1, just so you can see how the testimony of these brothers came later on. Jude chapter 1, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of who? A brother of James. So he's James's brother. Now go to James chapter 1. Now go to James chapter 1. And we're going to be 
not using karaoke all the way through July, so just be patient with us, Karaoke Bible. So we expect you to bring a Bible if you can't afford one. You can have one for free or use your smartphone. Amen? Time to stop being dumb with smartphones. You got Facebook on there, put the good book on there. Amen? Little pastor jokes there. Now notice this right here. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thought he said there he was also his brother. I must go to the book of Acts. Now let's go to the book of Acts to see James as a brother of Jesus doing this on the fly. Go to Acts 17, or rather Acts 15. Oh, I believe it's going to be in Galatians, but I believe it also says it here. Let's see. Let's make sure when it says to James... I want you to see that James, here we go. Okay, I don't believe we're going to find it here. In that, that's the Council of Jerusalem where James is in charge. We do not find him uh, being known as the brother of Jesus. Okay, now go to Galatians. Let's work the word. How many are working it today? You're getting a workout with your pastor. I thought he had it in James too, but no, it's Paul who calls him this. Look at James, uh, Galatians rather. Galatians, I believe it is going to be, is it chapter 1? Yes, thank you. James chapter 1, verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, which is an Aramaic name for Peter, stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only who? James, the Lord's brother. So now that you've taken that Bible trail with us, you've learned that James is the brother of Jesus, but Jude is the brother of James. Does everybody see that? So Jude and James are the unnamed brothers that we hear about in the Gospels. Now we see their names in church history, and they become followers of Jesus. How many want to see your brothers and sisters become followers of Jesus? Amen. That was just why we took that time to do that. Now going back to John chapter 19. We see that Mary is given over to John and that now John is to treat her as his own mother and to love her. Roman Catholics now try to say this was given to the church, that now the church is supposed to accept Mary as their mother and all of us consider her our mother. Now, hold on. Why would that even be in this context? Does anything here about John getting charge of Mary or caring for Mary have to do with spiritual things, praying to Mary? Does it? Yes or no? No. As a matter of fact, it says that he took Mary into her home and cared for her. So does that now mean that I take Mary into my home and care for her? Bring a little statue of Mary in my home, set up a little, little, little thing of milk in front of her, make sure she gets milk every day. When we make the arrachera tacos today, you know, um, you know the, put it out there, a little steak taco. Is that what I'm supposed to do? By the way, I spent almost a half hour cutting up the arrachera yesterday for my steak tacos today. I said, I'm working even for my own Father's Day. But my wife said she'll cook it for me. But she asked me, what do I want? And I said, I want tacos. Steak tacos. That's what I want. So she got these big slabs of meat. And I love some of y'all. Let me just take a little side note right here. I love some of y'all that you'll just cut these in like these little one-inch slabs. Give it to me at the barbecue. But I'm telling you, it's like... 
And I figured this out. I'm like, why did they do that at the barbecue? But when I go to the taquiera, the, the taquiera with the, the taco stand, they don't give it to me some big old slab. They, they chop it up. So no offense, but I think some people are lazy at the barbecue. So I figured it out. I figured it out. I'm like, hold on. You got to chop up the steak. You got to chop it up. But then my daughters with three pairs of scissors, uh, you know, me and my two daughters, we found out how long it takes to chop it up. But I'm like thinking, man, this is my last thought on this before we get back to this. I'm thinking they got to have some blender or something because there's no way, there's no way they're cutting these things with scissors as much as I'm doing it. And I tried it with the knife, but man, there's too much fat. There's too much sinew in there. So as you're saying they're doing it with the knife, I got to get that kind of machete. I got to get that kind of knife. If they do it with the knife, I want to see those knife skills. Somebody tag me in a video where I can see literally the arachada with like gristle all over the top. Somebody slapping that with a knife. I want to see that because I'm not sure I believe it right now. Y'all saying it, but I want to see it because I have a sharp knife too. And it was just like tearing the whole thing. Going back to this. Going back. To, how many are ready for this right here? Back to the scripture. This is not putting a taco in front of Mary today like you do with the Buddha. You know how they put meals in front of the statue? That's to honor that statue. It doesn't say, take Mary church and start praying to her and care for her. No, that's not what it says. This is a scripture that is taken, when it's taken in this context, simply shows the respect and honor that the Jewish culture had for their family. That's all that it is. So you see when Roman Catholics try to build doctrine, they do so by changing the scripture, taking it out of context. Can I hear any men for that? It's not that we don't honor the blessed Virgin Mary. She's blessed. She was a virgin, and she was a chosen one of God. We don't take away her honor, but at the same time, we don't give her honor that's only due towards God. Now look at verse 28. Later, knowing that everything now had been fulfilled, and so that the Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, or excuse me, now knowing that everything had been finished, and so the Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Because there's a Scripture talking about Jesus crying out, asking for help. There on the cross, he cries out, I'm thirsty. How many know you'd be thirsty? Beaten, putting up there on the cross, bleeding out everywhere, can barely breathe. So a jar of wine vinegar was there that they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge up on a stalk of a hypsop plant, lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, he said, it is finished. Now, if you notice here in the Gospel of John, we only get three of the last sayings of Jesus on the cross. And the reason why we take the Gospels as surround sound and not in contradiction is because each one of them is pointing out those things that were important to their theme that they had from the very beginning. Why is it important for John to point out that Jesus said it is finished? Because from the very beginning, go there with me now, John chapter 1, from the very beginning of John's gospel, there was a mission. Go there quickly, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we know that Jesus is God. Now keep going on. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Okay, so he's coming to the world. Why is he coming to the world? Verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world through him... Although the world was made through him, the world did not recognize them. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, receive him to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of who? Children of God. So children of God in the sense of they'll be like him as he is. 
without being fully divine. So remember, he's the unique son of God, but he's going to be the stamp that makes the rest of us sons and daughters of God. Notice, children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Now keep going to John the Baptist when he first meets Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day, John, talking about John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now go to John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only or only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Going now to John chapter 19, rather. John 19, what does it say? It is finished. What is finished? Him coming to earth to redeem us, to take away our sins. This is why every other religion is still working and Christianity is done. Every other religion wants you to start to run a marathon for God where Christians start at the finish line. Get that in your spirit today, brothers and sisters. Christianity starts at the finish line, and every other religion says, come on, start doing good things, and maybe God will save you one day. Do we believe that there are rewards in heaven for those of us who work for the Lord? Absolutely. But it's not by works that we're saved so that we can boast. It's by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus paid our price. When he's getting beaten, he's taking our punishment. Isaiah 53, quickly go there. When he's getting spit on, when he's being mocked, when he's being mistreated, who is he doing this for? He is doing it for us. Somebody say me. Come on, brothers and sisters. Never forget the price of your salvation. Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed, starting in verse 1, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like from one whom people hide their faces. He was despised. We held him in low esteem. Look at this, verse 4. Surely he took up our pain, bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Notice this language in verse 5. He was pierced. He was what? He, thank you. He was pierced for our transgressions. You see that with the nails. He was crushed for our iniquities. Remember when he was carrying that beam? And I had one here that I used to have for an illustration. It was a railroad tie. That's what they say was the weight of the beam of the cross Jesus was carrying. And I had some of the strong men of the church when we had that as an illustration pick it up and try to carry a railroad tie. And imagine doing that with all of the things that Jesus had gone through. Now notice what does it say? It says he was crushed for our iniquities. So when that fell upon him, it was because of our sins. Notice what it says. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are what? Healed, brothers and sisters. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I don't know about you, but when I hear Jesus saying it is finished, it, it touches my heart because I see him taking what I deserved. Think of all the sin you and I have committed. That's what he takes for us, our punishment, what we deserved. 
the mercy of God, the love of God is beyond our own imagination. We couldn't imagine doing this even, I mean, maybe for our family, but I couldn't imagine doing this for my enemies. And even then, doing it for my family, I couldn't imagine the intense suffering. And yet, it says he came for this. He didn't come to rule and reign in that moment as a king. He didn't come to be hoisted on our shoulders and be sung over him. He's a jolly good fellow. Or for him to be getting wreaths of flowers like they do in India for the gurus and a golden chariot to ride in. He's shamed. He's mocked. He's ridiculed. The very things that we have passed around the church this morning were used as instruments of torture upon our precious Jesus. And as we know in other gospels, what's one of his sayings? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Why would I ever go to a priest and say, Father, I have sinned. Please forgive me since my last confession. Why would I ever treat a man like he's my God when no one but Jesus has done that for me? Are you listening to me? And why would I ever turn my back on Jesus because of offense in the church, because of issues in my life? Why would I ever use my problems as an excuse to dishonor that one? Could you imagine that standing at the foot of the cross saying, you know what? That's not good enough for me because sister so-and-so offended me and I'm not coming back to this church. I'm not living for you. I'm going to go be wild now. Could you imagine at the foot of the cross, you bringing all of your problems there and then saying, you know what, Jesus? If you don't fix these problems my way, forget about you. I don't need it. I couldn't imagine that. And yet we've all done that. When Jesus doesn't do something that we like, Hey, 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 Jesus, hey, hey, come over here. I need you to do a favor for me. And he doesn't come when we want him to. He doesn't tap dance the way we want him to. He doesn't entertain us. He doesn't make us feel goosebumps every day. And then we just walk away from him. Ah, I don't need you. While he's sitting there, or rather hanging there, on a cross being tortured, he's saying, forgive him, taking care of his mother. And then he says, it's finished. Brothers and sisters, everyone hear me today. When you do not see Jesus as the crucified Savior risen from the dead, which we'll get into, Lord willing, next week, when you do not see him as that, everything in your life will become a problem that is unfixable. Unfixable. Your marriage, unfixable. Your addictions, unfixable. Your happiness in life, unfixable. Jesus is the solution. He is the one who says, this is fixed. This is, see, when I hear the word finished, I hear the word fixed. He fixed the problem. And if we don't have Jesus, we're never fixed. We're still broken. We're still trying to pull it together. And I don't care how good the world looks in the moment right now without Jesus, they're still broken, unfinished, unfixed if they don't have Jesus. Are you listening to me? I don't know about you, but um, I grew up watching Arnold Schwarzenegger. And so when I saw that Netflix came out with a documentary about him, I'm like a little interested. I'm like, okay, I'm going to watch this. And what sold me was that I could watch it edited on VidAngel so I didn't have to hear the cussing and the cursing. And I begin to watch Arnold Schwarzenegger's life. How many grew up or enjoy Arnold Schwarzenegger, if I'm the only one? I know some of you are all about The Rock, but I think, I think the Terminator could kill The Rock. That's what I think. I think he's stronger. But in a real fight, I don't know. I think it would be close. 
But I think like when you talk about characters, you know, Terminator, I'll be back, you know. All of this, like I grew up with that, okay? So I'm watching this dude, and what I notice is that it's all about him. Now, of course, it's a documentary about him. I get it, but it's all about him. He was the one who picked it up the weights in his bedroom and lifted them every night there in Austria. He was the one who said he was stronger than his brother and was motivated to impress his father. He was the one who traveled to Germany to start competing. It was all about Arnold. Arnold did this, and Arnold did that, and Arnold did this, and Arnold did that. And then Arnold moved to America, and then he moved to Venice, and then he did this, and then he did that, and he did this, and he did that. No talk of God. No talk of Jesus. That's what Arnold did. You've been around this church long enough to know what questions I have for Arnold, probably. Uh, excuse me, Arnold, uh, who gave you that body? Hello? Who gave you that body, Arnold, to be able to lift those weights and sculpt your body? Arnold, who gave you that brain where you said that every night you would imagine what you could sculpt that body into? So in your mind, you imagined yourself this piece of art, this, this work of art. Who gave you that mind, Arnold? And yet, I'm already into the third one, no mention of Jesus. The only time church is mentioned is when he married his wife in a church. But he was sleeping in the first day they went to church because she spent the weekend with the Kennedy family. And they woke him up and they said, it's time to go to church. And he goes, church, as if there was more important things to do. Brothers or sisters, why today in our culture do we look at that as the model of success when really that's the height of selfishness? You look at his life, every time I see him, I see him smoking a cigar now. Every time he talks, he boasts about these things. I think he's still humble. I think The Rock, I think some of these guys are humble. Don't get me wrong. But he boasts about himself, all the championships that he's won. And yet, brothers and sisters, his marriage has fallen apart. Multiple women throughout his life. Multiple disgruntled or at least separated children because they don't grow up with their dad. And then the kind of way he has lived and treated women and has looked at his success in a prideful, cocky way as they talked about his competition with, uh, hey, oh, Adrian, you know, uh, that's my best, that's my best uh, invitation here. I'll be back and, hey, oh, Adrian, you know, Rocky, Sylvester Stallone, right? These two guys were in competition to who's the best. And this is our example in our, in, in our world. For your generation, it may be The Rock and Vin Diesel, or this one or that one, or for the ladies, Kim Kardashian or Cardi B, or for those who have more of a sophisticated taste, you know, Ellen, or, you know, these different leaders that we see. You might be attracted to them. Look at Jesus on the cross in your imagination, naked, bloody, beat, and yet he cares for us. He loves us. This is why I'm never going to be ashamed of Jesus. The Bible says that if you're ashamed of him in this world, he'll be ashamed of you in the world to come. In other words, if you can't stand up for Jesus now, men, he will not stand up for you on the day of judgment. So I'll never be ashamed of my Jesus because if he was willing to bleed and die for me when all Arnold Schwarzenegger wanted for me was my money, 
to watch him be half naked on a movie screen. I will not be ashamed of my Jesus who gave everything for me that all he asked is that I would believe in him. There's nobody like my Jesus. See, the world's not afraid today to talk about their fan. they're a fan of this, they're a fan of that, they follow this one, they like this one. And yet when it comes time to talk about Jesus, people get quiet. People get shy. People get afraid. And yet Jesus was the only one that could fix us. And I pray for these men and women to be fixed by Jesus, especially men that are old like Arnold Schwarzenegger who are not the kind of men they used to be that remind us that life is short and that it passes as a fleeting vapor. I pray they get to know Jesus because if they do not know Jesus, when Arnold Schwarzenegger dies, when he closes his eyes in that $100 million mansion that he's in, when he closes his eyes there, he will face the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the first things his knees will do will bow down to my Savior and call him Lord. And if he has not accepted Christ as his Lord, he will be sentenced. Think about this, brothers and sisters, to hellfire for eternity. How is that just, people ask? It is just because our God died for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Our God in the form of man allowed his flesh to die for us miserable sinners. How dare we now turn down the invitation of his salvation? It's as simple as today, if I invited you over to the Father's Day barbecue and you decided not to come, but all those who came, I gave million-dollar gifts to. That's all it is in the end, my friend. Did you come to the wedding feast of the Lamb? See, what heaven is about is celebrating the Lamb. Remember in the book of John, it started with a wedding feast. His first miracle, as we went through the seven miracles of John, remember in John's gospel, the first one is the wedding. And then what in the revelation, what happens at the end is the wedding feast now happens from heaven coming to earth. It is completed. He starts here on earth saying, who wants to come to the wedding? There's more than enough wine. How many know Jesus knows how to have a good party? Amen. If you drink, don't get drunk. But notice this. He throws a great party, barrels of wine. Everybody's enjoying it. But then it has to end. And yet we learn in the book of Revelation that there's a wedding feast that never ends, a time with the Lord. Forever the bride is now with the groom. Why? Because he took our sins. There's no one like my Jesus. If anybody talks to you about a religious figure, if anybody talks to you about some book that has influenced their life, you point them back to Jesus and the cross and say, what has your person on this one right here? Mine went to the cross for me, took the sins for me, bore them, said it was finished for me. And of course, what does he do three days later? He rose. And of course, he kept his word, I'll be back. Amen. Look at chapter 19 as we come to closing. With the keyboard is come, please. He said, it is finished. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. So these religious people got religious things to do. Let's get it over with. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down, thus telling us that the most popular way for them to die on the cross was from suffocation. So now if your legs were broken, you could no longer pull yourself up to breathe because hanging down at that angle does not allow your lungs to take in air. This is what the doctors say. So if they were just hanging like that to breathe, they would have to stand up on those crucified feet. But remember, 
It doesn't say anything about them being beaten with the cat of nine tails, being up all night, being stripped in those kinds of ways and mocked and spit upon. So they're still alive. So, okay, we're going to go break their legs so now they can only hang down until they suffocate. You can only live a few minutes without air, so they're going to die quickly. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. And we learn about those thieves in the other gospels, those criminals. One of them came to Christ during that time. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So there is our precious Jesus hanging on that cross. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing out a sudden flow of blood and water. This was called the death piercing. This was a way to give the death blow, in other words, to a victim that the Romans wanted to make sure was dead. So he looks dead, but of course you can pass out for a certain amount of time as you're suffocating before you actually die. So just to make sure that he is not going to resuscitate, as some claim when we talk about a resurrection, the historians try to say, oh, the Romans, they didn't know he was dead, took him off the cross, put him into a tomb, and then he rose. First of all, there's a whole lot of other things that would have to happen for that to even be true. Number one, the disciples would have to be idiots to believe that a man who resuscitates but is totally mutilated is now their resurrected Lord. How many know looking at a mutilated person, you're not coming up with the, the, in your mind, you're a miracle. How many know that's not happening? The second thing is the tomb gets sealed and was guarded by Roman guards. How does a man who was beaten within an inch of his life, blood everywhere, his muscles hanging out, move a stone that is sealed with concrete in the Roman's Invented concrete, basically. Put it to use like nobody else. Come on, somebody. That would take another miracle, wouldn't it? And then to insinuate that those boys didn't know how to kill you, <laughs> maybe in our time we would fall for something like that. Oh, I don't know. He kind of looks dead. No, these people made dead people all the time. Killing was their business in Rome, and Rome business of killing was good. They knew what death looked like. So they had their own way of checking at these times. Okay, we've seen them play dead before. We've seen them kind of pass out before. We've seen this before. <laughs> We're going to see now if he's really dead. And what they say that spear did going right up through the rib cage, puncturing the lungs, puncturing the heart and the vital organs so that all the blood and water starts to drain out. Yeah, he's dead. That's what they do to our Jesus. No love, no respect, no honor. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. John is there. That's what he's saying. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you may also believe. John is saying, you can believe this. And this will be called into question as time goes on. Did these disciples make up the story or was it really a fact? John is telling you right here, this is a fact. How do you know he's willing to die for it? Remember this. People will die for what they hope to be true. But no one will ever die for what they know is not true. Because whenever we use this argument, people point to Muslims and say, see, they die for what they believe in. Yes, 
You'll die for what you believe in. No one's questioning that. But notice with John and these disciples, he will not die, but he'll be boiled alive. And then when they can't kill him, they'll take it as a sign that he has a miracle on his life, and they'll exile him. So technically, he'll be the only one that doesn't die a martyr, but he'll lay his life down. He says, I'm ready to die for this, and he will have the chance to die, but God will spare him. But notice this. We're not saying people die for what they believe in. Of course they do. You can believe in anything and say, I believe in it, and I'm willing to die. That's not what these disciples are saying. They're not saying, we believe We'll see Jesus raised one day. We believe that when we get to heaven, we'll see him made new. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is, we saw this man die. John is saying, I was there. I watched the spear go through him, and it gush out all of his internal juices. I watched this happen. And then a few days later, John is going to say, I touched him, I ate with him, I saw Doubting Thomas put his hand in his side and touch the nails prints in his hand. I know Jesus was crucified, he was buried, and he rose again. There is nothing like the Christian faith. It is the most verifiable faith of all human history. Whether you now take John at his word is up to you, but I don't just have to take John at his word that Jesus is alive. I know that I've experienced him. And so he says, I've seen it. This is true. Now notice what John does, verse 36. He says, these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. And another scripture says they will look on the one they have pierced. And that's in Zechariah. And guess what? Zechariah says is the one they pierce, Yahweh. They will, the Lord, Yahweh says, they will look on me, the one they have pierced. Show that to a Jewish person that doesn't think Jesus is equal with the Father. You explain to me then how your Old Testament prophet said through the voice of Yahweh, they will look at me, the one they have pierced, says Yahweh. Are you listening? Yahweh is pierced. How do you pierce God? Well, if he takes on flesh, you can pierce him. And yet none of his bones are broken. Over 300 prophecies are fulfilled from Jesus' life to his death to his burial and resurrection. 300 to the place where he would be born, to the time period that he would be born. Remember Daniel's prophecies of the 70s of how he would be born and he would be crucified before the destruction of the temple and then how his best friend would betray him. Remember those prophecies about Judas? And then how he would be crucified and how he would be pierced and how he would be crushed. But yet none of his bones would be broken. Why is that? Fulfilling the requirements of the Lamb of God that it would be a pure, spotless lamb with no blemishes or broken bones. That's our Jesus. Somebody say, that's our Jesus. What an encouragement we learned from John. And now in closing for today, just another fact of the matter that I love of this story. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Now, everybody think about this. Why does John give you these details? Because John is wanting you to know you can trust the account. When the people like the Da Vinci Code try to do away with the miracle of the resurrection, you know what they always say? Well, 
He probably resuscitated in the the tomb, and then he got out somehow, and then he lived his life with one of the Marys, and then he eventually died, and everything went on as it was, and people, you know, hungry for power made up that he had rose from the dead. No, 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 you can't do that with this. The Romans crucified him. That's a fact. We know who did it. Pilate names the leader. We know when he is crucified. You can study the the dates with the Sabbath and how this happened on that Friday. We know then, notice this, where he's buried. If I'm wanting to make up a story about someone raising from the dead, am I going to tell you who buried him and where exactly they buried that person? No, I'm going to say somewhere, if I'm telling you a story in Chicago, somewhere way over here in Peoria, they buried this guy and some, you know, placed by a lake over here, you know, some vague reference. Your Bible mentions the man, mentions where he's from, and mentions where his grave is at. Church history records the tomb. And now today people argue over the exact one because there's a couple in that area. And people, of course, want to make money off your tourism when you visit Israel. I haven't been there yet. But we know it's one of these two because it's in that same exact area. Notice that. Joseph of Arimathea comes. And then who comes with him? Nicodemus. Oh, we had never heard about that man before until we read John. Remember Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Don't mention it. Why is John telling you John chapter 3? I think John tells you John uh, chapter 3 so that you can understand who Nicodemus is because he's a key character in the burial of Jesus. In other words, God used John wanting to include Nicodemus in the story so you would understand when all of those disciples were afraid and no one was coming anywhere close to Jesus except for John and none of them had the wealth or the ability to make a difference here. It was a religious uh, tied-in guy named Joseph and a religious leader named Nicodemus who got Jesus' body and buried him. Why is that important? Because your Bible's based in history, and then it shows you that God didn't forget about his people. You can't look at the, the story of Jesus' crucifixion and read in John and only hate the Jews. You can't be an anti-Semite. First of all, Jesus is Jewish. How many know that's dumb to be anti-Semite? Jesus is Jewish. But notice you can't just say, well, all the Jews, all the Jews. No, no, no. Not all of them were shouting crucify him. Not all of them wanted him to die that day. And yeah, one was a little on the shady side, a little secret, I should say, a little on the secret side. But when he lost his friend and the one he believed in, he went and got him. I just, something about that just hits me in the heart. I think about Joseph going there that day. And I don't think Joseph knew all the prophecies, even like the disciples were. Remember, the disciples are confused even after the women come to him. It takes them a long time. Somebody say they were slow. They were slow. I'm not capping on them. I'm just telling you the truth. They were slow. So I don't even know if Joseph of Arimathea understands it all, but this is something that he says to himself. You know he's got to say something to himself like this. We don't see it in Scripture, but I imagine I love that man, and I can't let him die like this or let him be buried like this. That's why I look at some of you like Victor and others that stood with Juan during that time of Nini's Deli, and I see you guys like that. Not that you were secret disciples, but I just, I'm proud of you because I was watching that video again, my brother, and I saw you walking with him and Calvin. When our church was suffering persecution, there were some men here. I said, I stand with my friend. We don't go out like this. Even, you know, even just let me talk about this just for a second. Even if, if anything like this were to ever happen again in our church, if it's not sin, stand with your brother and sister in the public eye. 
because you need to show the world we stick together. And then we're going to work on family business. Now, if somebody you hear about somebody molesting or doing some stealing, no, I ain't with you, Jack. But how many know that that wasn't that when it happened at Nini's? Nobody was stealing, nobody was lying. It was literally this man standing up for his business, and we had people in our church run away from their friend. Juan, would you come back over here, please? People that Juan had copped meals to. Some of those people that left the church and left you hanging, had you copped them some meals, been nice to them and blessed them? And they just ran away from you. But I love that people like Victor and Calvin and John and others stood next to you. See, that's what I see Joseph of Arimathea like. I see him like a ride or die with Jesus. He may not have been the most vocal. He may not have been the one making all the noise. But when it came time for him to stand up, he went to Pilate. He took on courage. And then you notice this with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes as well. And how much does he bring to wrap Jesus in and to take care of him? It says he brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Remember we talk about the woman who brought out her perfume and all those goodies to Jesus? She had probably a pound. This dude right here brought 75 times that amount. He's probably a millionaire. He brings all of that for his Jesus because Jesus is worth it. I thank God for these men that came and took care of him. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it up with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial custom. Now, of course, you could do this without all of that. So Jesus is being treated special here. You could get by with a pound or two. They're going overboard. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid him there. How many going to come back next week to hear the good news? Hallelujah. Come on. Amen. I hate to leave it there. But band and altar workers, would you come, please? But I have to. I got to do it justice. I couldn't do both, you know, in the same message. Too much reading there. It is finished. If you came here today and you are dealing with sin, brother or sister, young or old, guess what? Jesus took it on the cross. It is finished. If you're dealing with addictions today, Jesus said to you, it is finished. You don't have to smoke again. You don't have to vape again. You don't have to get drunk ever again or go to OnlyFans again. It is finished. It is finished. Today, anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, trauma, PTSD, things that may take time emotionally to reconcile with your physical brain. But hear me today, in your spiritual life, in your soul, you can be free right now. It is finished. It is finished. And what is that word that I like to see as a synonym to it is finished? It is fixed. He fixed us. He fixed us. He fixed what was broken in us. He fixed what was missing inside of us. He fixed those things about us that even strong men like Arnold Schwarzenegger can't fix on their own with their strength. He fixes brokenness. He fixes low, I want to say low esteem, but it goes deeper than that. Low self-worth. Low understanding of your purpose. He fixes it and he shows you that you're made to be a king or a queen. I still go to the gym. I still exercise, but I love saying to those bodybuilders, how you look on the outside is how I look on the inside. 
And what I am on the inside is going to last a lot longer than what we have on the outside. Because the Bible says, instead of Christians growing old and losing the glory of God as they age, the Bible says that the glory increases from glory to glory to glory through everything that the Christian goes through. It achieves for them a weight of glory that far outweighs the troubles of this life. Brothers and sisters, would you stand with me, please, and just raise up your hands. And in your own words, would you say, Gracias, Señor Jesucristo. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. Would you thank him for the cross today? Would you thank him for the beatings, the whippings, the crushing, the mocking, the crown of thorns? Would you thank him that he did that for you today? If you're not a Christian, would you ask Jesus into your heart with your hands raised? The first thing you can do is say right now, forgive me of my sins. I want to be a new creation. As we're worshiping him, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. It is finished. It is finished. There's a new life. There's a new season. There's a new attitude. There's a new way of living. Now with hands raised, would you walk, would you walk out of here with faith? So before you leave, declare what your life is going to be like right now. With your hands raised, declare what your life is going to be like as you get ready to walk out of here. I will live for Jesus. I will be a godly husband. I will be a good father. I will be a good mother, wife. Come on. What are you going to do for Jesus today? We know that the third day is coming. He's going to rise. He died so that you might live. He said it is finished so you could start over. What do you want to start over today? Even for the fathers, I pray to start over in your marriage if it hasn't been good. Start over in your fatherhood if you haven't been a good father. It is finished and it is fixed in the name that is above every name. That name at which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. It's in his name we pray. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Can you bless him first service? God.